0: This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. A couple of weeks ago, my colleague, Will Kinlaw, and I talked about the message from our institutional investor indicators. And listening back to that podcast, I realized... I ended things on a pretty downbeat note, making the call that cash might well be an attractive asset to hold or to allocate even more to in coming months. It has decent yield. Inflation is falling in most economies. And if market sentiment worsens and the gains we've seen from risky assets so far this year start to erode, cash may well get a greater allocation and may deserve one. Now I'm not being a doomer here, but markets so far this year are behaving as though we were in a regime that is more akin to pretty robust economic conditions. Equities have already retraced about half of last year's correction, and bond markets are really struggling to get a foothold. And look, maybe that is the reality for the outlook here, and that's the correct way of discounting markets at the moment. You know, our own asset allocation process favors a modest overweight inequities versus bonds for the coming few months. But the longer-term outlook, I think there, there are a lot of ambiguities. And and that's based on some of the things I've already noted above in terms of past performance, but also the economic realities. Where we are right now is we have policy outside of everywhere, but maybe China and Japan getting tighter. Growth is slowing and recession probabilities for the coming year are elevated. It's still far from a certainty that we get a recession in the US or elsewhere, but at the very least, we can say recession probabilities are elevated. We have our own metric, in fact, that tells us that. And at the same time, inflation is still a big problem for central banks, for economies, and monetary policy is still tightening, especially in most developed economies. And so I think that highlights how difficult the investing environment is, how difficult prediction is, and how ambiguous potential returns look for the coming months. And that brings me to my guests this week, who, along with another colleague of theirs, have written a recent paper titled Handily Enough Portfolio Construction When Regimes Are Ambiguous. This work is really based around a statistical measure that captures the relevance of past episodes to help optimize portfolio allocations depending on the assumptions you make about the economic outlook and the regime ahead. It doesn't tell you how to invest, but rather it's about making better predictions and how to weight the most important historic parallels more prominently in your analysis. So my guest today to talk about that are Mark Kritzman, who is one of our longstanding research partners, perhaps our longest standing research partner. Mark is also CEO at Wyndham Capital Management and is a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management. And joining Mark is Dave Turkington, who is our head of State Street Associates globally, who has written many papers with Mark over the years on topics like this. I'm very pleased to welcome them both. So Mark and Dave, good to have you here. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Well, Mark, let's kick it off with you, if we may. And before we get to the notion of portfolio construction, which my introduction really kind of was all about, I wanted to see if we could start with you for a discussion of this notion of relevance that I introduced, and particularly the advantages it offers for making better, more reliable predictions. And if you could as well, give us a bit of background in layman's terms of how this is calculated.
1: So relevance is a statistical measure a uh, very p- mathematically precise measure that uh, gives the importance of an observation to a prediction. Mm. So, in the case of uh, time series forecasting, an observation might be a prior period, such so as a prior month. And what we want to know is how relevant is that month to forming a prediction of, say, the future performance of the economy. So relevance includes two components. One is a measure of similarity and the other is a measure of informativeness. So what we would like for, for an observation to be more relevant, it would be more similar to the circumstances from which we are predicting or the scenario that we are trying to address. And uh, it would be more informative. By informative, uh, we mean how unusual is this observation? So observations Mm. that are similar to current circumstances, but different from average, are more relevant than those that are not. And what we've been able to determine is that we can form predictions as uh, by taking a relevance weighted average of past observations. And this has a really important advantage over the more conventional approach that people use to form predictions, which is uh, linear regression analysis. Mm. So the problem with regressions is that they're very well grounded in theory, but they only work if the relationship between the predictive variables and the outcomes are reasonably linear. If there's any significant asymmetry in the relationship of, of the variables and the outcomes, then uh, regression won't work. And you know, those of us who are in the business of forming predictions, many of us have latched on to uh, machine learning as an alternative to deal with this kind of uh, complexity. But the problem with machine learning is that you know, the most powerful machine learning Uh, algorithms are very opaque. Uh, They're not theoretically grounded, they're mainly empirically driven or determined by trial and error. And they're not adaptive, they don't adjust to new circumstances. Relevance is there it, it compares favorably, therefore, to both regression analysis, and machine learning algorithms, it compares favorably to regression analysis, because it can deal with asymmetries, it knows Uh, Given current circumstances or a scenario that we have in mind, it knows what subsample of relevant observations should be used to form that prediction. So it, it, it addresses what machine learning addresses, but it does so in a way that is completely transparent. And by that, I mean that since the prediction is literally a weighted average, the relevance weighted average of these past observations you can see precisely how each observation contributes to the prediction. The other uh, feature of relevance that's nice is that because it is actually across all observations, it gives you the same answer that you'd get from a linear regression equation. It, it's justified by the same theoretical justification that uh, regressions lean upon, mm-hmm. so it's, it's very solidly theoretically grounded. And then the, uh, the third feature that allows it to compare favorably to uh, machine learning is that uh, it's adaptive. It automatically adapts to new circumstances, whereas with machine learning, you'd actually have to rebuild a model to address circumstances that aren't in the history that the algorithm is uh, based upon. Let me just uh, stop there and give Dave a chance to correct me. I just
2: want to emphasize one point uh, that you made, which is that relevance based predictions are equivalent to the prediction of a linear regression model if you include every observation in your historical sample. Right. But just to stress this point, a key intuitive advantage to the relevance based approach is that since you can observe exactly how relevant each year of history or each month of history is to today's prediction, you can Mm -hmm. focus on a smaller sample of just the most relevant data, which allows you to capture that conditionality of your prediction on the specific circumstances that you want to be dealing with and not to pollute the prediction with potential noise from irrelevant periods in time. So it gives us this flexible toolkit to be able to observe what's happening and then also make these modeling decisions.
1: I think another um, point worth reiterating is that It is theoretically grounded in two ways one is what Dave just described is that across all observations it converges to the prediction that you get from regressions but it's also based on information theory which is really uh, a very very powerful concept and it it holds that information is a inverse logarithmic function of probability and what that means um, is that unusual events Contain more information than common events, and this is sort of at odds with the way we've been trained in statistics. We've always been trained to be skeptical of outliers because they may be data errors or uh, you know, events that are unlikely to recur. But it, but if you know if they're errors, obviously we want to get rid of them. But if they're events that are not going to recur again, it's still the case that there's a lot of information in those events. And therefore, that, that's why relevance uh, in, includes both these components, similarity and informativeness, and they're both measured as Mahalanobis distances. Uh, you, you've jumped to my next question, Mark, which was to, <laughs> to explain
0: that technique. The, the Mahalanobis distance is a statistical technique we've relied on in, in a lot of our work, a lot of your work over the last 20 years. Can you Can you give kind of a
1: layman's depiction of that? I'll try. So, Mahalanobis <laughs> was a statistician in India, and uh, this goes back to the uh, 20s and 30s. He was, um, he was working with an anthropologist to analyze human skulls, mm. of all things. And uh, he set about taking measurements of skulls, the height, the width, how far apart the eye sockets are, and he came up with a formula such that if you took all of these measurements, he can tell you whether a particular skull belonged to one caste in India or a different caste in India and the beauty of this formula is that measures distance and you can think of distance or the you know the negative of that similarity by not just by how. Close these measurements are to each other, but taking into account how variable they are across a large sample of skulls, and also taking into account how these measures co-occur with each other. Hmm. So it, it it takes so you basically look at the difference of say a set of measurements from their average, and then you take those differences and you multiply them by the inverse of the covariance matrix, and that accomplishes two things. It it, uh, considers the co-occurrence of the measurements, and it standardizes them by dividing by variance, then putting them into units of variance. And then you just post-multiply by, you know, a vector of the uh, differences from average again, and that collapses everything into a single number, which embodies a massive amount of information. One thing that can be helpful is to relate it to the concept of a Z-score. That's a
2: statistical idea that a lot of people are familiar with. And a Z-score is like when you say that the market had a three-sigma event. How many standard deviations from normal was the outcome? Um, The Z-score captures that in standardized units. And it turns out that the Mahalanobis distance is just a squared Z-score that accounts for a lot of variables at the same time. So Mm. if you were to try to say how unusual was a certain occurrence, but instead of just defined by the market's return, it was defined by the returns of 10 assets collectively, you would need to use the Mahalanobis distance to answer that same question. And it accounts for all of the interactions between
1: those variables and their typical Variation through time. I think that the taxonomy is that, you know, a z score tells you how unusual something is given a single variable. If you had a collection of variables and they were uncorrelated, then you'd use a Euclidean distance. But if, but, you know, economic variables are never uncorrelated. So the Mahalanobis distance actually takes into account those correlations. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just
0: going to say, that the the uses we've had for this, and I, I want to start to shift us now more towards the application, and and specifically the paper that was written was about portfolio construction, but we've used this to look at things like the stock bond correlation, I mentioned the recession probability index we've constructed, I believe relied on a lot of, well, I, I know relied on the Mahalanobis distance, but in, in terms of the topic of portfolio construction, Dave, I wanted to to ask you, The applications of this work to portfolio construction, you in the paper divided variables that cut across growth and inflation. Those were the two main variables used to define regimes and then to use relevance-based predictions or relevance-weighted outcomes to identify optimal portfolios for each regime. And something like the current environment, in the paper, you define stagflation as somewhat similar to what we're seeing right now, kind of pretty weak growth and relatively robust inflation. Could you describe the most noticeable differences in asset allocation preferences using a relevance-weighted assessment versus what you might get, you know, just kind of doing a naive, equally weighted analysis?
2: Sure. I think it might be helpful to start by just describing how this approach uses relevance to form portfolios out of predictions for return and risk estimates compared to what people would traditionally do in a conventional type approach. This is obviously a very important question because more and more when we talk to investors these days, people are concerned with forming portfolios that are going to be resilient to all sorts of different types of economic environments. And the question is, if you don't want to hold just an average portfolio that performs in an average way across all different economic regimes. If you have predictions or or expectations for a regime that might be likely to occur like stagflation or a recession or something like that, how can you engineer a portfolio with properties that are going to be very resilient and robust during that specific environment? So the way that people would typically do this is specify a scenario that they think might occur in the future that they want to construct a portfolio for, Uh, and then try to rely on historical patterns of how assets have performed in similar periods to build that portfolio. But the traditional tools for doing that analysis are very blunt and very Mm. limited. So for example, you might say to to stick with your example, Tim, Mm. that the current conditions have relatively high inflation compared to historical norms and relatively weaker growth uh, than we're often seeing. Uh, And so you might say, let's take today's values and go back and look for periods in the past that were exactly the same. And then you might find that there's nothing that was exactly the same as the conditions that are happening today or that we expect for next year. Uh, But there are things that are reasonably close. So what people would do then is say, well, there's no perfect replica for what's happened in the past. But maybe I can just say, let's find times with high inflation and low growth compared to average. And if you do that, you're going to partition history, uh, let's say you, you say, you take all of the historical years that have higher than average inflation, and then of those, you take the half that have lower than average growth, and you're going to be left with a quarter of your data sample after you do that. Uh, and you could just say, well, let's equally weight the returns that occurred for the asset classes in my portfolio during those 25% historical periods. Uh, And then form a prediction. And that prediction will help you build a portfolio. That will give you expected returns for how the assets will perform in those types of environments, as well as risk estimates like correlations and volatilities for assets. But one obvious problem with doing things that way is that it's a very crude assessment of what periods you should pay attention to or not. So, what about something that's just ever so slightly higher than the average inflation, but has really pertinent growth to today, mm. maybe well, you wouldn't include it because we set this rigid 50% threshold. Yeah, uh, It's arbitrary how you set those thresholds. And moreover, when you keep combining these thresholds to find the intersection, you might find that if we require extreme high inflation and extreme low growth, that there are almost no data points left. Um, so how do you deal with this? The, the way that seemed obvious to us when we started thinking through this and with the benefit of this technique of identifying relevance is that every historical period you can draw from is relevant to some extent. Some are very highly relevant because they're similar and informative, and some uh, are moderately relevant because they're somewhat similar and maybe they're a little less informative, but it doesn't mean that you should ignore them entirely. Uh, So that's allowed us to measure the precise degree of relevance of all these historical periods where we get a, a good sample where some are weighted more heavily than others because they're more pertinent to today. And in this most recent research paper, we applied it just as an illustration, really. There are many ways you could do this, but using inflation and real growth in the US, we defined four characteristic regimes which correspond to basically a robust economy, an overheated economy, a downturn, and stagflation. And as you say, stagflation is reminiscent of uh, where we find ourselves today as a stereotypical characterization of historical periods. Uh, So we find these and we estimate the expected returns, volatilities, and correlations during the relevant periods to each regime and look at the portfolio allocations, which were were pretty intuitive and pretty interesting Mm. in our
1: example.
0: Is there anything that stood out to you, I think both as a general tendency for this particular application in terms of Something that seemed counterintuitive or something that was surprising to you in in this type of analysis, maybe, versus an equally weighted scenario analysis? Or is there indeed anything within the results that kind of stood out to you as as unusual or counterintuitive? Well, the
2: main thing that struck me about the results was that they
0: were quite intuitive. Uh, and, And that's good,
2: because this seemed like a reasonable approach to us, and it's comforting to see that you get reasonable answers. (laughs) Again, I I think that the answers are going to be better, Uh, they're going to reflect a more nuanced assessment of the information, and going to that informative component of relevance that Mark mentioned earlier, you want to rely on certain historical experiences more heavily than others, so the equally weighted approach neglects that important fact, and it can lead you to less intuitive or more extreme results. Just to highlight a few of the findings that we saw, uh, for robust and overheated periods, there is a robust uh, equity allocation, so almost 60%. In fact, it's close to a 60-40 stock and bond portfolio favoring corporate bonds during robust markets. But then as we move into, for example, the stagflation scenario in our model, we found that... And I guess I should caveat this by saying that there are not that many attractive areas to consider during stagflation. So the task of the optimization algorithm is a tough one, but it has a large allocation to cash, 33% in this uh, example, uh, and plenty to treasuries, almost the same amount. And it, it does allocate about 20% total to equities across US and foreign uh, with, with about three quarters of that in the US and then 10% to commodities. So it's reasonably diversified. uh, But it's heavily, heavily tilted towards the types of assets that have proven that they perform more resiliently in this combination during stiflation type environments of the past.
0: Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me, particularly in the overheated scenario, I was curious if you had any thoughts on this. The the diversification element between foreign and US equities is maximized in an environment where the, the characteristics are the overheated conditions you describe, high inflation, very robust growth. Do you have any sense for why that might be? Yeah, I did think that was interesting. The, the best explanation that I could give offhand
2: is that We are basing our scenarios here on U.S. economic data for inflation and growth. So in an overheated environment, growth is very high, but we have worrisome inflation. Uh, It may be that internationally, when that type of environment occurred in the U.S., there were countries that had less of a dire situation uh, on the inflation front. And so even though we haven't modeled every country globally, the approach is able to recognize that you can get this sort of international diversification and this is of these four regimes the time when it seems most needed uh, wh- where you you have some of it during stagflation as i said but to a much less extent uh, and you you don't have much of it recommended during the downturn and robust um it's more a question of risk on and risk off there and whether you want to favor equities or bonds
0: yeah, I, I think as a, as a final thought for me in, in li- thinking about this paper and the scenarios that were outlined and the, the basis on which better predictions can be made, those regimes of stagnation, downturn strike me as the low the, the, the most likely. And as you highlighted, Dave, Cash, especially in in a downturn, really stands out as a, as a big allocation. I kind of just began the podcast talking about cash. There there was a reason for that because I wanted to talk about it a bit at the end. And these kind of strike us, I think, as the most likely or or highest probability scenarios for this year. I I don't rule anything out. But I guess that is what makes this relevance-based work so interesting is in thinking about a cash weight, perhaps if that is your belief about the the, the remainder of this year, that conditions are either those of stagnation or potentially a downturn, those cash allocations and, and weights may need to rise, but at any rate, I think we're about out of time. And I, I wanted to just reiterate the framework for considering how to run scenario analysis. Here is the main takeaway, and there are loads of applications we didn't even get to talk about. You know, predictions for say next year's presidential election. Maybe we'll do that in a podcast in a few months' time. But Mark and Dave, thank you so much for giving us a flavor of how to think about prediction in more robust ways using the, these techniques. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back on soon. Okay. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own, careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment legal or tax advice and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.